are in Daniel 8. Remember, we did 7 last week, 8 this week, and then we're going back from a chapter standpoint to 5 and 6, but we're going forward chronologically. So next week, chapter 5. As we think about Daniel 8, it's just a great segue where we are going to see that God is a God who rescues his people. God is a God who doesn't abandon his people even when they've abandoned him. And so I love what we have seen this morning already, and now we're going to see some of the same types of things from Daniel chapter 8. I want to pause before chapter 8 and just remind us that when we come into the Old Testament, we're really learning about who God is. The Old Testament builds this deep reservoir of experience and knowledge about God so that when we look at our lives, so as we look forward to the New Testament, as we look forward to our own futures, We've got now lenses for how to interpret what we see, lenses now how to interpret and to expect and to anticipate God to work in and through our lives because of this vast amount of information, this vast amount of experience we have with God throughout the Old Testament. And so it's really like being married for 50 years where you, at that point, you just know so much more about that person than you did when you first got married. Some of you have been very married for a very long time, and you look back to when you had just gotten married, and you think, oh my goodness, I had no idea what I was in for, and I had no idea who this person was. But now after 50 years, you know a lot more about them. And so the Old Testament is this uh, 37-part uh, mini-series about God, but it gives us a lenses for how he relates to us, what is in store uh, for our future. And we understand from the beginning of Genesis that God put his people in the garden, Adam and Eve, and his presence was there with them. They were, in a very intimate, personal way, they were together. We all understand sin and Adam and Eve's choice. They said, that tree looks good. God said bad, but it, it looks good. Let's go with good. And they're separated from his presence, right? As they're cast out of, of the garden. And so uh, then a bulk of the Old Testament is this pendulum where God is pursuing his people, inviting them back into his presence, inviting them to be blessed in his presence, inviting them to be his people. And sometimes they respond with faithfulness and obedience. And we see that over and over and over. And when they do, uh, they go like this uh, with the Lord, and we see his blessing in their life, his provision, his protection. We see his presence, not restored to the garden, uh, but restored uh, in the sense of being God's people and moving forward in his plan for them. Then we also see them repeatedly reject him, reject the Lord, reject his ways. They want a king. They want to intermarry. Their lives begin to look like the nations around them. They trust uh, what they can do, and they trust in idols more than the one true God. They fear their circumstances. They fear their enemies more than they believe him for his protection. And so what happens is the Lord brings corrective action over and over and over and over as an effort to draw his people back to himself, believing and knowing that they will be most satisfied when they are right with him, that his name will be most glorified in the world when his people are right with him. And they, like a kid in the candy store that just can't help but grabbing the candy, like the kids in the lobby between services that can't help grabbing the donuts, God's people just seem to go astray. Get afraid and go astray. Get a little bit of momentum, get apathetic and complacent and go astray. And so we see God's corrective action to bring them back. And at times we see uh, God's corrective action take the shape of allowing their poor choices 
to result in poor outcomes so that the consequences of their decision are leveraged by the Lord to keep them from continuing in their sin. Has anyone ever been there? The Lord has allowed the consequences of your choices to catch up with you so that he could bring to your attention that this was not a good thing to do and in fact he had something better for you. I remember my roommate, my second year uh, at Biola, he had just gotten word that he was being expelled from school for the rest of the year and he's sitting in the dorm room, it's him and I, uh, the music on his computer is as loud as it could possibly be, figuring out what he was going to do next because there was a police or a campus security escort waiting to take him off campus. And, and he's sitting there and the music's playing and, and I'll never forget, uh, it was a band, Lincoln Park, and this is the chorus of the song that just reverberating through our dorm room. The lyrics of the chorus say, everything you say to me takes me one step closer to the edge and I'm about to break. Second half of the chorus is just like it. I need a little room to breathe I'm one step closer to the edge and I'm about to break. And so I'm hearing this music and watching the face of my good friend and thinking he's going to break and everything around him is going to break as well. Uh, this is going to be interesting. But it was a, it was a crisis moment uh, where the result of his choices had caught up with him. It was a crisis moment where he was able to see who he was and he had a choice, either belittle, dismiss, deny, or blame away what he saw, rationalize away what he saw, or he could do business with God. It was a crisis moment. Humble yourself or repent. Humble yourself or repent. As we go back to the Old Testament, we're going to see who God is. Throughout Daniel, we're going to see who God is, how he relates to his people in crisis, how he relates to his people when evil seems to be thriving in the midst of judgment. Um, but we're also going to see countless examples in the Old Testament of stories and of characters and of God interacting with his people that are designed to cause us to look forward and anticipate his work in the future and to better understand who Jesus is, why Jesus needed to come, and what he did as a result of what we've learned in the Old Testament, as a result of some of the stories and the characters that we're familiar with in the Old Testament uh, one of those stories is the story of Boaz. Some of you are familiar with Boaz in the book of Esther and Naomi and her widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth, and they are in despair because they have no men. The men have died in their family, so they are going to be without land holdings. They're going to be without means to take care of themselves or means to take care of their future, essentially reduced to beggars. And Boaz, if you're familiar with the book, of Ruth. Boaz marries Ruth. And in one move, he redeems and he restores them. Brings uh, back dignity and holdings and security uh, to the family. Uh, provides for their future in a unmerited act of grace. He comes and he restores them, makes them whole in a sense. And so that's a great picture for us of what Jesus does. And so as we think about Jesus making a way for Jews and Gentiles to be made whole, it helps us understand Jesus to think about Boaz. Solomon is another character, and there's dozens and countless of circumstances and uh, illustrations, but in Solomon we see the wisest person that ever lived. Right? God blesses this man uh, with wisdom. In Matthew 12, Jesus is talking, and he's explaining to the people that they've missed it. They're not understanding 
who he is, and he describes to them the way that the queen um, of the south came to view Solomon, traveled a long distance to see his wisdom and marveled at it. And Jesus says this as he's explaining himself to these people. He said, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. In other words, everything that you know about Solomon, understand that something greater than Solomon is here. And so our understanding of who Jesus is is enhanced as we understand some of these Old Testament characters and narratives. It makes sense of things that may be foggy for us. Uh, puts skin on some of the characteristics of our Savior, of our Messiah. And so as we get into chapter 8 today, we're going to see that today's text, another vision, foreshadows future things. It foreshadows some of what the Antichrist will do towards the end of days. And so we're going to uh, read through our text. Uh, we're going to make some uh, just historical uh, assessments, things told about here approximately what 550 bc how they came to fulfillment in around 170 bc and then we're going to see some parallels between what is described in chapter 8 and what the antichrist will do for the purpose of encouraging ourselves and saying god is not going to abandon his people god is not going to be overpowered even though it's going to appear that evil is thriving even though it's going to for a time be significant judgment for God's people, that even in that, he won't abandon his people or be overpowered. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 8 of Daniel. I'll kind of walk us through the first 13 or 14 verses, the vision that Daniel has. Uh, then we'll read the text starting in verse 19, uh, part of the explanation for that, uh, and then continue. If we're picking up in verse 1, we see that it's the third year of Belshazzar, which means we're two or three years after chapter 7, two or three years after the vision of the beast that we heard about last year, last week. Daniel, in the vision, is standing on the bank of a river. He's looking across, and he sees a ram with two horns that are high. One is higher than the other. Uh, the ram is just stampeding and trampling, uninhibited, destroying, dominating, ruling, expanding its territory. And then he looks again. And he sees another animal, a goat. And the goat is said is essentially like moving across the face of the earth like it's flying, like it's gliding across with great speed, with great tenacity, ferocious. And it's got this really strange looking horn, a singular horn that comes out of this goat. And as Daniel's watching and as he's contemplating these things, the goat charges right at the ram and crushes the ram and stampedes and tramples over and destroys everything that the ram has built and conquered. And he says that the, the singular horn that was coming out of the goat breaks off and from it four arise. After the four arise, a small horn grows up out of it. Verse 12 is a significant verse in the vision where we see that everything that is being described is because of a transgression. Everything that is being described is because of the people's sin. Everything that is being described and everything that is happening is brought about by their wickedness. And you may recall that the book of Daniel changes to Hebrew at this point 
in the book. And so we're seeing an intentional focus uh, on the Jews, an intentional focus on the Hebrew people. So that it's, I think, a fair thing to say that what we're seeing here is judgment for God's people's wickedness, not just rampant wickedness around the world, but specifically for his people's. What Daniel's seeing is is ugly and he's uh, confused and he sees two angels at the very end of that portion of the text. And one angel says, hey, tell this guy how long it's going to last. Tell him how long it's going to last. It looks like he's going to wilt over here. Tell him it's not forever. And so the angel uh, says to Daniel, the things that you have seen uh, are for 2300 days uh, in verse 14. So the question is, is why would God give Daniel this vision of his people's future judgment? How does that inspire hope and inspire encouragement? How does that help them stand firm? How does that comfort them in suffering and encourage them in persecution? We see that God comes to his people and gives them a warning before judgment is going to happen. We see that God comes to his people and says, this is coming. So when it does Rather than scatter, rather than flee, rather than fear, rather than wilt and collapse under the weight of the pressure that they would understand that God has not abandoned him. God has not abandoned them. And that God is not going to be overpowered, even though for a time his people will be overpowered. We're going to see that even though God does not like who his people have become, even though God has not been honored amongst his people, he's not going to move on. He's not going to take his blessing from them he's not going to give up on them and so even in the midst of blessing we're seeing that that god's favor rests Uh, some of you have young kids at home and sometimes you struggle to discipline them in a way that is pleasing to the lord because sometimes they irritate you sometimes they embarrass you sometimes they frustrate you sometimes they know exactly your buttons to push and you've just had it one last time and so sometimes punishment feels a little vindictive feels a little punitive or maybe even like we're getting even we're going to see that as God brings judgment, there's no, it's not punitive in nature. God's not trying to get even with his people. At every step, at every page in the book, God is trying to draw his people back to himself. Let's pick up the text in verse 19, and we'll unpack the explanation, uh, the historical parallels, uh, some foreshadowing of the future, uh, and then we'll wrap up. Verse 19, Daniel chapter 8. Verse 18, basically he falls over. (laughs) He falls asleep. He sees what it is and it says he falls asleep with his face to the ground. The angel says, no, no, we're not done. Stand up. Come here. Up with you. Uh, Maybe holds him up. Verse 19, he says, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. At the indignation, the end of God's wrath, when it has come full circle, when it is full up. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. Verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, related back to Daniel chapter 2, the chest of silver and the arms. Uh, Daniel 7, the lopsided bear. As for the ram that you saw these are the, and the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. This is the bronze of the statue. Uh, And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. And the horn that was broken in the place of which the four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation. 
but none with his power. And we understand from last week that as Alexander ruled Greek and when Alexander died that his kingdom went to four different generals, none of whom ever rose to the power and the might and the strength and the rule of Alexander. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall rise and he shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and I went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. Isn't it nice to hear Daniel say, huh? What are you talking about, God? Rams, goats, can you speak in English? Uh, Has anyone ever read through, especially some of the stuff in the Old Testament, and said, God, translate. Come on. Daniel didn't get it. And so what's really neat is we get to read about this now, what, 2,500 years after it happened, and we get to see how some of these things were fulfilled. And so you got Alexander and Greece, right? Alexander goes by the wayside, and four kingdoms come out of one. Most scholars understand this small horn that grew out of the four to be Antiochus IV, the general of the Seleucid army. The Seleucid army was one of the four uh, groups that would come out of Alexander's conquest. He would take the name Alexander Epiphanes, and since God manifest was the title that he wanted for himself. And so what we're going to see is that much of what is here in the vision is fulfilled in 170 to 164 uh, BC when Antiochus rules and destroys and tries to rid the world of the Jews and goes at the one uh, true God. But then we're also going to see that it foreshadows the Antichrist and that it prepares God's people as we look at the nitty-gritty details of what's going to happen here, we look forward and we anticipate what the end times and the tribulation and the rule and the short-lived reign of the Antichrist will be here on earth. So here's just uh, a few details about this guy Antiochus, this small horn that grows up out of the four. Um, In verse 9 it says he faced the south and the east and the glorious land. Glorious land often Uh, The sense is that it references uh, Jerusalem. We're going to see Antiochus, uh, prior to coming in and conquering Jerusalem, is going to go down. He's going to go south uh, into Egypt and just kind of wipe wipe up Egypt. And then he's going to come back up uh, to the east, uh, to the area of Israel. Verse 10 says, he grew great even to the host of heaven. And he threw down some of the stars and he trampled them. Generally, we've had the sense that the hosts of heaven, the stars of heaven, are the saints of heaven. And, and part of what seems to make sense of that is that Antiochus had 80,000 Jews killed and 40,000 sold into slavery. So it seems to fit what we're reading here. Verse 10 is in, the, in 
chapter 8 says he also made himself out to be a God. We see that in the name that he chose for himself. We also see that because when he comes in to Jerusalem, he's going to put a statue of Zeus in the temple with the face of his own. And he's going to command people to offer sacrifices to Zeus in Yahweh's temple. Verse 11 says he's going to take away the regular worship and the sanctuary or the temple was destroyed. Antiochus is going to destroy the temple. He's going to forbid the worship of Yahweh. He's going to put up new altars and command the Jews to offer unclean animals like pigs on those offer he, on those altars. He's going to offer up a pig in uh, the temple and splatter the blood throughout uh, the temple. Horrific thing after horrific thing to defy God and to wipe the earth of God's people. Verse 12 says he will throw truth to the ground and he will trample on it. We understand from history that he's going to burn every copy of the Torah that he possibly can. Interestingly enough, in verse 14, we see the angels, we hear the angels tell Daniel this is going to last for 2,300 days. Um, one reconstruction of the timeline pegs Antiochus's beginning of his assault at about 170 AD and the end of his rule, the end of his, in a sense, control of the temple in Jerusalem uh, ends on December 14th or 16th of 164 BC. So we're looking at six years, four months or so, uh, roughly the equivalent of 2,300 days that Antiochus will rule and rain down pain, suffering, and death upon God's people. We see a remarkable attention to detail from the Lord 350 years before this is going to come to, ba- to pass. And sometimes when we think about God, um, we think about God as, you know, big, big strokes, big picture, doesn't have time for the details in my life. And we see great attention to detail here, such that we understand that as our view of God elevates, as we have this high view of who God is, his power, his sovereignty, his goodness, that we understand that there are no random circumstances in our life. And it doesn't mean that God has brought every piece of pain and suffering into our life, and he's just up there with tests. And every pass a test or fail test, he's just bringing another test, uh, you know, like a, a kid picking on, a, on an animal. Um, but we understand that he can use all of those. He can leverage all of those things for good. He can redeem all of those. He can show himself powerful over those difficulties in every one of those situations and each one of those things is an invitation from him to cling to him and to find him sufficient and to find him faithful to find him good to find him all powerful talked at the bit at the beginning about these types these old testament characters that foreshadow help us understand who jesus is what he would do and why he would come And so we see in this text an incredible amount of foreshadowing, a a whole bunch of parallels between Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist. Let me just read a few of them, um, some from Daniel 7 and some from Revelation 13 and and one from 2 Thessalonians 2. We see that both Antiochus and the Antichrist are represented with small horns that start small and grow up and get larger. They influence their power their rule, uh, their evil, wicked uh, agenda and ways just seems to grow 
Uh, we see that about Antiochus, and we see it about the Antichrist in Daniel 7, verse 8. Daniel, reflecting on the horns, he said, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up one among them, another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the root. Talking about the Antichrist rise to power, uh, just a devastating path, uh, a devastating weight in his path, starting small and rising large. Both are described as having a very stern, a very aggressive, a very fearful uh, countenance. In chapter 7, verse 20, Daniel sees the horn grow up and he immediately identifies that something is different about this one. It is terrifying. He says it seems greater than all of its companions. And so just at face value, just watching it grow and it rise up in the vision, Daniel understands that this is not like the others. The third thing is both are going to be intelligent. Uh, Both are going to be crafty. Both are going to be deceitful. We understand that the Antichrist is going to solve world problems. He's going to bring people together initially, not divide them. People are going to want to follow the Antichrist. He's going to do things for them that they want to be done and believe to be good. Sometimes we think about end times and uh, the Antichrist and and the sense of coercion that he's just going to force everyone into submission. And they'll be a part of that. But we've got to understand that there will be many, even many who would call themselves followers of Christ, who will willfully submit because it will be easy, who will willfully submit uh, because they'll be afraid, who will willfully submit because they'll see what the Antichrist is doing and believe that that's actually a good thing for humanity. Both Antiochus and the Antichrist will have great power. We read from Revelation 13 uh, last week. Uh, and you recall s- some of that, but we see Antiochus' great power, the extent of his rule and his destruction uh, is just, uh, it's over the top. And the Antichrist is described in Revelation 13 similarly, saying, also, it, the Antichrist, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Okay, this isn't just going to be a small uprising. This is going to be a colossal wave of momentum behind the Antichrist. Both are seemingly empowered by the enemies. We read in Daniel 8 that as Antiochus goes up, it would not be by his power. Uh, We see in 2 Thessalonians 2 um, that, well, I'll read it here. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. So there is going to be a supernatural element uh, to this Antichrist, not by his power, but Satan embodied in him. Finally, they're both arrogant. Antiochus goes into the temple, puts a statue of Zeus there, says, Sorry, Yahweh, this is my place now. You people will offer sacrifices as I command you. You will not follow Yahweh. You will not follow the law, you will not keep the Sabbath holy, you will not be circumcised, you will not, you will not, you will not, and makes himself out to be a god. We see in Revelation thirteen six that the Antichrist does the same thing. It opened its mouth, verse 6, to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, that is, those who dwell in heaven. When you get a second... Do some research on Antiochus Epiphanes. Look at his rule. Look at his reign. Read some of the stories. They're horrific. And yet we see so many parallels 
between Antiochus Epiphanes and the things that the Antichrist will do at the end. And so at face value, we might read this and go, I give up. I thought things were going bad before. Now I realize things are going much worse than I realized. And and so what we've got to see is the Lord is not coming to Daniel and, and squishing Daniel, discouraging Daniel, creating despair in Daniel, squashing out hope in his, in his people. The Lord is coming to Daniel and saying, this is going to happen, but I'm not going to abandon you in it. This is going to happen. This is going to be where your sin, nation of Israel, leads you, but I'm not going to abandon you, even though you deserve for me to abandon you, even though you deserve for me just to let your sin have its way with your people. So what do God's people do? How do, how do we respond to, to a text like this? How do we respond to his word that talks about the future judgment of God's people and talks about things that we know to be certain in the future for uh, humanity and Christians included? Matthew 24, Jesus is sort of explaining this to people who are listening, and he actually references Daniel 8 and says, when you see things happening like Daniel talked about, be ready. He says, flee. Um, and then he answers this question for us about what we should do. How should we be ready? Uh, he says, who is the faithful servant? He says, a master goes away and puts a servant in charge. Then he asks the people, who is the faithful servant? The faithful servant is the one who does what the master asks him to do when the master went away. It's to be found faithful. It's not to dig holes dig big holes and put all of our stuff in those big holes and have supplies to last us for 150 years and then just go down there and hope that maybe we can come up at some point and and, and someone will still be here. Uh, We don't need to go and hide. We don't need to shrink back. We don't even need to look forward to the future uh, with great fear. And I think for many of us, there is a huge and a significant amount of fear as we look forward. We see what's happening around us in all different spheres and it causes us to believe that greater is he is in the world than he that is in us. And so we've got to recognize that fear, call it what it is, lack of faith, distrust, seeing our circumstances as bigger than our God when our God is bigger than our circumstances, and identify that and give that over to the Lord. To stand firm. His word is meant to encourage his people in persecution, to comfort them in the midst of suffering, and to exhort faithfulness, to exhort us to stand firm in the midst of what we see, knowing that our God won't leave us, and at no point will he be overpowered, even though for a time his people will. I mentioned my roommate when we started, and ironically, he's one of the handful of people that I have been most pleased to know uh, in my life. And, And I mentioned that this was without a doubt a crisis point, either ignore what I see in the mirror, uh, either deny what's there, either blame others for the consequences, or do business with God. And so, so he went home. Uh, his family lived 2,000 miles away back east. Uh, he went home. Uh, he lived there. Uh, he worked. Uh, he was humbled. Uh, as we were instructed to do this morning, he had two hands out like this. And the Lord, one by one, began to take those wounds. The Lord, one by one, began to take those pain, those undealt-with areas of his life that were like festering cancers, began to one by one take those. And uh, 
my roommate, a year later, petitioned the school to allow him back in. Now, what would have been a lot easier is just to go to school on the East Coast. I had to stay away from everyone who knew who he was in the past, to stay away from all of the people that he had hurt and offended, to stay away from the school that had kicked him out so that he doesn't have to answer questions. Hey, where were you last semester? I was kicked out of school. That kind of kills the conversation. It doesn't make a great first impression. He instead, he petitioned the school to come back. The school, after doing an interview with him and his family, said, you're right. The Lord has done a work in your life. We must be a school that is about this. Now, it's going to be messy because there are people that are going to leave the school when they find out that you're, ba- you're back. Uh, it's messy because this is going to be very hard for you. Every day for the next year, Uh, during the school year, you're going to be reminded of what you once were, and you're going to have to be retelling uh, this story. And and so we we certainly have the opportunity to run from our past, uh, even when God has transformed us and changed us. We have the opportunity to belittle, dismiss, hide stuff, uh, and run from it. But we don't get where God's going. We don't get led in the life everlasting by, by running from our past. Uh, and so, I mean, what's neat is to share with you today that he is a fantastic husband. Uh, he is a great father uh, to five kids, and probably they're getting ready to have another one because that's what they do. Um, he finished his degree, uh, got a master's in apologetics at Biola Seminary, and now speaks in his community. He's invited to speak all over the place uh, on apologetic things. Uh, he got a juror's doctorate as well, because people that like school seem to like a lot of it. Uh, So he's running his own law form. He's preaching at his church. He's speaking in the community. But more than any of those things, he he is the epitome of holding his hands open like this to the Lord. Some of you know people who have a ton of rough edges, right? And it is really hard for them just to fit in anyone's box. Others have much softer edges, and they might come right on into church, first time ever, and just kind of feel like they fit. That's not my friend. <laughs> Lots of rough edges. So for him to move forward in the Lord, for him to be an example to others, for him uh, to be someone that people look to and see Christ, it takes a lot of work. He can't wear a mask. There is no mask big enough. Uh, it is purely the hand of the Lord, one by one, taking those things out. And to my friend's credit, he did the hard work. He recognized, I can't fix this. Only God can. And God has and is. He made a decision day by day to open his hands to the Lord. And day by day, it's starting to become a lifetime. We're going to wrap up here in just a second. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and lead us in a song of response. Uh, We're going to, during that time, also take this morning's offering, our worship through our resources, our worship through our giving. And after that, I'm going to invite the prayer team up uh, to be up front as we wrap up the service. And and what I wonder is if there's people here who have come face to face with who they've become or choices that they've made, and maybe consequences are sneaking up and are starting to catch up with you. If that's you, I'd like to invite you forward at the end of the service just to pray with someone and ask for the Lord's favor in your life and for him to give you faith to open up those hands. If that's you at the end of the service, I'd love to invite you to come forward. This is a journey that we're all on together. We need each other. Take advantage of these people. Allow them to be part of God's work. Um, It's pretty rare that we open our hands uh, and don't have someone standing behind us 
uh, encouraging us in the Lord, standing with us. Uh, allow this church to stand with you. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you to respond in singing, to respond in giving, we would ask that our response would not be limited to our words and our voices, and our response would not be limited to our dollars and our wallets, but Lord, that our response would be a lifetime of devotion. Our response would be a moment-by-moment, day-by-day openness to your spirit, a responsiveness to your leading, Lord, and an appetite and a hunger for who you are and for your will to be uh, come to fruition in and through our lives. Lord, we confess that we bring a whole bunch of baggage, and we're thankful that even in, if we look really into the heart of the beast of judgment, that we understand uh, that you will never leave us and that you will never forsake us. And even though for a time, for a time, Lord, it's going to be painful uh, to be your people, fill us with a, a great joy, a great confidence, uh, Lord, that you will never leave us and that you will never be overpowered. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.